Welcome back to Dateline New Haven on WNHHFM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make New Haven tick. Well, there was a big, big headline, national headline coming out of New Haven the last few days. We got we got two great people to help us uh, run it down. We got uh, John Valeca, who's the resident justice expert in the WNHH. He's Sergeant Arms of State Legislature, former Assistant Police Chief in New Haven. And he's a regular on the station, and someone who I hope becomes a regular on the station, Kayla Vincent, the executive director of the Yale Law School Law and Racial Justice Center. And one thing I'd like to hear about one day is you were previously a staff attorney at Alabama's Equal Justice Initiative. So you've been also on the front lines of a lot of these, um, a lot of these issues about justice and race and policing. Thank you both for coming on the air. Of course. And I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to um to get really close to the mic when you're talking. So the big news, obviously, is is that in the last week, New Haven announced a settlement with Randy Cox. He's the man who last Juneteenth, people don't mention it was Juneteenth often, June 19th last year, he was the um, he was being arrested. He was put in a van. The van had no seatbelts. He was banged around during the van, and he obviously hurt his neck badly. And instead of giving him mental detention, the police officer brought him to the lockup and then dragged him on the floor, taunted him, said he was making stuff up, and paralyzed him from the neck down. $45 million now the city's going to be paying out. The biggest settlement in history for municipality. What were your, let's start with Kayla. What were your reactions when you heard this news? Yeah, well, you know, when you're, I think it's it's interesting to think about how, why the settlement is so high compared to others. Um, a lot of times, I know the obvious sort of comparison case is Freddie Gray in Baltimore, um, who didn't survive his 6. injury. 6.4 million. Right. And in some ways, when you survive the injuries, that means you need medical care for the rest of your life, right? And you can I can only imagine he needs round-the-clock caretaking, uh, which probably means a family member or several family members' lives are also completely changed for the rest of his life. Um, so it makes sense, you know, his medical care ought to be taken care of as a bare minimum of, of, of where the settlement should have landed. What did you think more broadly? You're someone who's looking at injustice in the criminal justice system. Did you say justice? Well, you know, it's hard, right? Because justice means he has he has a spine that's functioning. Uh, you know, it's kind of hard to think about what it looks like um, to give Randy Cox and his family justice. It certainly looks like more than just money, right? I think this is maybe one of the things we'll get into, but it's been interesting to read like the internal, internal affairs investigations and what the officers involved have been saying. And at bare minimum, you would think an apology would be required for there to be justice for Randy Cox. And instead... You have officers saying, if I was in that situation again with the same set of information, I do the exact same thing I already did. I think we have a long way to go to think about what, what justice looks like in its fullness um, beyond just money. And the city has fired two of those officers. I think they're going to fire the other two. They yeah. changed their policies. They immediately obviously put seatbelts in the van, but they also dealt with training and how things are working lockup. Should the city have done anything beyond what it's done? You know, I think... I think it's helpful to try not to just tinker when things happen. So, for example, Freddie Gray lost his life in 2015, and yet New Haven was still using vans without seatbelts until this happened to Randy Cox. And so I think waiting until something's happened and figuring out how to very narrowly make sure what happened to Randy Cox never happens to someone else is a little bit too narrow of a, of a stance. I think even if Randy Cox hadn't been... Um, so seriously injured or injured at all, what happened being dragged by police officers is never appropriate, right? So how do we create a place where we're not treating our neighbors as if there's something less than human? Because that's what happened to Randy. 
And we have every reason to believe that that's sort of standard procedure at the detention center and that there are other people who aren't losing their spine, access to their spine, but they are being dragged across the floor. And so if we were really going to do everything we needed to do, we'd have to be thinking about all of that, too. John Valleca, what did you think when you heard the news? Well, obviously, it grabbed my attention. It was almost double the, you know, the most expensive. Uh, you know, George Floyd was $27 million, almost double that here. So you have to beg the question, why? Um, and you look at it from the, you know, the administrative and the executive command and policing. You know, these are business decisions, okay? Uh, but, you know, what we don't think of sometimes, when first, to scroll back, justice for Randy, there's not going to be justice for Randy Cox. Justice for Randy Cox is he doesn't become paralyzed. That's justice. He gets arrested. He has his day in court, and he's treated humanely along that way, and he's either found guilty or innocent. That's justice, right? Justice is not throwing money at it. And I, I really wasn't a proponent of what the mayor said. You know, we're trying to make a statement here. Well, what's the statement you're trying to make, that we could fix everything with money? You know, like like the parent who neglects their children and buys them nice things. That's not that's not how it goes. Um, as Kayla began to speak, it, it, there's a culture that exists, and we talk about that every single time I come in here, that there is a culture that exists within policing that is not addressed, right? We address policies, we lawsuit, and we do everything that we can to skirt the issue of the culture, of the culture that needs Well, we actually change, have a mayor who right? promoted a Proud Boys culture and then got dragged into not letting those people in charge anymore. Have you seen an improvement in that culture since that police chief left and some of her people left? I think that the police chief we have now is doing a great job. I think he can do a great job. I also will tell you from experience, it's not all on the police chief. All right, the police chief can have the best intentions in the but world. Who sets the culture? He he sets the culture with what he's allowed to set, with what they are allowed to set. And you have to understand, you can have the best uh, mission and vision in place, and it can never materialize. But how do you? I think what we try to do, unfortunately, is we try to gain compliance through discipline and punitive action. And the only thing that's gonna really work is if we try and gain willful complaints, make officers understand what they're doing, why they're doing it is wrong. Because like as Kayla just said, you have officers still saying, well, I would've done the same thing. That's an obviously misunderstanding. That's that's somebody who is not educated as to why what happened to Andy Randy is wrong and, and why they shouldn't do that. Do you, you know what I mean? So it's, it's a bigger issue and we look at it and we address the baseline issues because they're easy to address. Sure, change the policy. Sure, give money, right? Because the the harder thing to do is to gain willful compliance by your officers, and and it's a matter of education. It really, it's not training. It's not training where you put somebody in a classroom for, you know, X amount of hours a week and you, you roll out implicit bias training. We still haven't we still haven't addressed explicit bias. Let's forget about implicit bias right now. Let's just talk about the rudimentary stuff, right? We don't spend enough time with our officers, with dialogue and things like that, and understanding how they think. Look at how we, how we, and I don't want to get off on a tangent, but look at how we hire. We don't select people. We deselect people. We get a bunch of people, and we run them through a process, and we find reasons why we can't hire them, right? And then we pull from a pool of what's left over, right? What's so the alternative? Not, the alternative is start to do things like, like I said before, start to bring humanity back, just human logic. What do we want? We want people from this city, okay? Do we know in, in urban areas, black and brown kids are exposed to um, criminal activity at an early age, and do they sometimes get hung up in it? Yeah. So let's not immediately scruff that, you know, scrub them and from Rebecca the list. Sweeney Goddard is listening live, saying better educated, better trained officers and right. better hiring practices. Thank you for listening, Rebecca. What do you think when you hear that, Kayla? 
Yeah, I mean, I guess I, 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 I think about how do we think about community, our community safety, perhaps in a way that's broader than that, right? So Randy, Randy ends up in police custody because he's carrying a gun and he, he's, he has records, so he's not allowed to have a gun. I don't know Randy Cox personally, but I imagine he's carrying that gun because he, it gives him a sense of safety, right? And so he, he goes to this probably Juneteenth barbecue in order to feel, he has his gun in order to feel safe. And it turns out that actually the danger he faces that day is from the cops, the people who are paid to keep us safe, right? Like that's, that's what we're told. And so how do we create communities where people feel safe without carrying guns? Because then we don't have any of this situation happening. So I think sometimes our conversations about safety are a little bit too narrowly focused on the way things work now. And we do need to do things to address that. But I think we also need to imagine other ways of having community safety that might, you know, require less contact with police Great. for civilians. And we're talking to Kayla Vincent Chavaleka about the $45 million settlement the city has reached with Randy Cox. So let me read you what, are either of you familiar with the quote from the police union this week? I read it, but they I were not it. happy that the police chief and the board of police commissioners decided to fire the officers. They said, quote, with the termination, Chief Jake's administration, we officers woke up today to discover the cop haters are still not satisfied. The department is now a uh, direction list. They're not going to bring you back with words like we got your back. The union is urging all members to proceed with the utmost caution in this post police accountability reality. Reality where they may be deemed reckless just for doing their job and held to a higher medical training standard than the EMTs who conducted a medical examination. We will uphold our oath, but we, oath, but we cannot, will not do so by unnecessarily jeopardizing our careers or personal safety. This chief and his administration are not here for the members. I have lost faith in the chief's decision making. How do you feel when you hear that? They say we're not going to. We're going to do technically what we have to do, but we're not going to go out there and do what we think we need you to do to keep us keep you safe because we're having our hands tied by having officers fired for doing nothing wrong. What, what do you, what, what do you yeah. think when you hear that? I mean, in some ways I think we have, we should take the union at their word, right? If they, they are telling us that in order to do their jobs, people need to end up paralyzed and we should ask ourselves, okay, well, is that who we want to rely on for community safety? You know, like if it's what I'm hearing the union say is that they don't think the officers should have been fired because they did their job. And, and if that's what they think their job is, then we really failed collectively to create, you know, any form of community safety that actually keeps us safe and free from harm. John Valeca, you've had now, I was telling the, the police chief that there is sort of chat GBT union statement anytime an officer's, you know, even though it's such an attack of the chief, I actually think you've had many statements like that written about you, John. Right. What, what did you think when you heard that statement I just read? Well, you know, that's what you just said. As we say, we're bromide, right? That's that's something that the union rolls out every time. We're behind the officers, and what they did was wrong. And But I got to be honest with you. I'm not sure if there's a, a police officer who, who can watch that video and admit to himself that something's very wrong with that, right? That's a, Those are fireable offenses. I'm sorry. And, uh, you know, if my brothers and sisters in the union don't believe that, but the truth is the truth, and reality is the reality. Um, these are not days where we have to rely on somebody's perception of what happened anymore, right? We have a video there. That was We've a game seen changer. The video. And also mm -hmm. the way that, and Chicago didn't do this. Do you remember in that case with Romano? They didn't mm -hmm. release the video. They released the video right away here. Mm -hmm. We were not fighting about what happened. Yeah. We fought about whether it was okay. Mm -hmm. I saw that as someone who's covered policing for 40 years. I saw that as an advance. Yeah. I, I thought that was helpful. I, I agree. Know. Because I, I, I could tell you that, you know, the first thing, the knee-jerk reaction is to circle the wagons, you know, fight to retain everything. And the little bit we give out, make, you know, whoever wants is going to have to fight very hard for it. 
I think that, and that's why I say the chief here does a good job. But but listen, if your heart is in the right place, it's not tough to do the right thing. It really isn't. Should the people get to see that video? Of course they should. But you know, when I hear the statement, it's always a, an irony for those of us, you know, just being upfront about point of view. I, I care a lot about unions, and I really care a lot about union rights, the NLRB, and and police union, people who tend to be more left leaning and support unions tend to oppose police unions and sees them as the people who have been in the in the blocking any kind of accountability for police misconduct. And that, that's the kind of a tough position to be in because I do think police officers need a union. Are there any thoughts about when you hear a union statement like this, what do you think is someone who also might be for worker rights? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think as John was saying, it's, it's kind of like not a surprising statement. They always come out behind their person and their membership and in some ways that's what they understand their job to be. But I think when we think of, I know there's police officers have a sort of unique, they have a unique power. They have the right to use force sometimes deadly force um, and it be seen as legitimate. And so I do think we have to think of police as workers differently than we think of teachers as workers or nurses as workers. Um, teachers don't get, they don't get to shoot people and get away and, you know, and not be seen as having done something that's called murder. And so I think you, you can't have, if you're going to have the one, then you have to be willing to give some on the ways that police as workers really are fundamentally different than the rest of us as workers. Thoughts from you, John Velocca, because you've been on both sides of that. Yeah. I, union I, member, you've negotiated with unions. Yeah, absolutely, sure. I, I do, and I've always said, and this is nothing I haven't said to unions I worked with, I think that you diminish your credibility when you come out and you support something like that. I think what that does is now it hurts the officer who really needs union defense, who's going to be viewed as immediately wrong and just having a union to support it, because that's what the union does. Now, if the union was to come out and say, listen, you know, everybody's seen the tape, and we're just going to make sure that these employees are afforded due process because that's what we do, and we're going to make sure that everything got, Which gets is done. It's a due process is important. Right. We'll make sure everything is done is in line with the contract, okay? Then that, I think that's more of a professional statement than to say, you know, they, they're looked at reckless because of what they did. What they did was reckless. I mean, come on. Lieutenant Goddard writes in again, she's retired. The video's disturbing, but that message from Union is more frightening. I understand the union protecting their membership, but where is the accountability? Right. What about root causes? And we're talking now with Kayla Vincent and John Velocco talking to us about root causes. This verdict, I mean, this settlement came on the same week that yet another case of prosecutorial misconduct has overturned a verdict from the 90s and, uh, and early 2000s in New Haven. We have a whole string of those. This was the Adam Carmen conviction in the Danielle Mini Taft shooting. There's a seven-day rally of which uh, Kayla's group is involved with, Gaylor Salters, with all these people are telling their stories who have been sent to prison, and then if you were the freed because they, it was revealed that prosecutorial misconduct was hidden, or it turns out they didn't do it, like Mamish didn't do it. What, how does that fit together, and what should we do in the face of that? Yeah, I think it really paints a picture of like an, just an indifference to human life, and of course not all human life, particularly poor people, particularly uh, black and brown folks. Um, and we, you start to see people making decisions that are best for their careers or for things that have nothing to do with justice. And I think it's a great question because we should see these things as connected. What happened to Randy Cox is not disconnected from what happened to Adam Carmen or what happened to Gaylord, who, who hasn't actually been fully cleared, even though we know he's innocent of the crime that he served two decades for. 
So I definitely think it's part of one big picture. And what is the root cause? Now, so for there's definitely, I mean, everyone would agree there's racism is, is part of it. In the Randy Cox case, all the cops were of color. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we tease that out? Yeah, well, you know, the, 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 when we talk about racism, we're talking about structural racism, right? We're talking about a system that is designed to disadvantage people who are not white. And you don't need to be white to enact that system. All, it's sort of like the default program. It's in the air. We're all breathing it. And so unless you're, you are cognizant of how am I actively acting against this system, you can be a black officer and be doing all the same things that any officer would do because you're in a system where part of your job is to sort of manage a society where poor people and where black and brown people are disadvantaged. And so I, I, to me, it doesn't, it's not surprising at all that the officers in Randy Cox's case um, were of all races because we're all, we all have to be really intentionally working against what we're programmed into when we're born into this society. John Valeca? I think uh, Ken makes a good point. I say you can be a black officer, still be just as oppressive as, as anyone out there. But the converse of that too is you can also be a white top level administrator and help the cause, right? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times that's forgotten um, by everybody involved. There are things that can be done that are simply not being done. And I've spoken about this a million times, especially when we come in here, we talk about the culture. It's the culture of- well, I think about culture because I think about the individuals involved and now I could be wrong about this. I found that there was one individual involved who has been acting not well in the job, like has shown disrespect for people in the past, had very personal problems. And there are others who were really known as respectful, good cops. All right, let's stop there. When for a the minute. whole group starts acting that way, they act that way too. And I wonder what that says about culture. But stop right there. That's what I'm talking about. A good, respectful cop, a good cop. What do we say is a good cop? What do we say is a good what do you what makes you a good detective? You solve your cases. Right, you respect you clear people. Your You're not looking to no, no, no. Jam people up. Within your culture, people. within your culture, but within police culture, you're a good detective when you clear cases, when you put people in jail, when you catch the murderer. All right, you're a good cop on the street when you put up numbers, you hand out a lot of tickets, you make a lot of arrests. Until that culture changes and we start to look at good cops from the inside the way you guys look at them from the outside as good people doing the right things, it's not going to stop. Do you understand? Because the detective that wants to be promoted is going to put somebody culture, in jail. Like I, think I don't have the skills to be a police officer. It wasn't my career goal, but I kind of believe if I was in the culture, I might do things that I'm not proud of because exactly. of the culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because, listen, especially in the 90s, especially in the 90s during the height of the crack epidemic and violence is off the hook, I could tell you directly, there was an, an inordinate amount of pressure put on police officers in the patrol division to make an arrest. And then the detective division to make clearances on major cases, especially murders. When you put that much pressure on officers, misconduct follows, and that's all there is to it. That's that's just it. You take away from the officer the ability to follow what's logical and true, and you push them towards doing anything to get the job done. And then when the when the end justifies the means, is how we end up where we are today. And Kaylee, did you grow up here? No, I didn't know. Because it said you came home. Yeah, well, I went to college at Yale, so I went to college here, but I'm from Atlanta. Okay. Yeah. yeah. What do you, any thoughts about the difference of what you see in Southern and Northern? Because uh, once I was covering in the 1980s, there was the Greensboro, and are you familiar with mm-hmm. those, the, the slaying um, civil rights workers mm-hmm. by the Klan who were working with the FBI? And I went to interview, I was from the North, and I was uh, from USA Today, and I went to a police chief in Greensboro, North Carolina, who was black. And I started coming with my attitude about you racist Southern police before and said, well, you know, I, I'm from Bridgeport. I went up there. I, I didn't notice too many black officers. <laughs> I didn't know that I felt any safer walking there. What's your view of Northern versus, and I guess we're running out of time, was Northern and Southern police? 
Law yeah, I mean, I always say if you're if you're south of Canada, you're in the south. Um, that's how <laughs> I feel about. <laughs> I think that's probably the most distinct way to explain it. Okay, any final thoughts as uh, about the Randy Cox settlement, and where do we go from here? Yeah, I mean, I I think we really have to we have to think about community safety outside of just policing. I think part of what you were saying is you know police respond after harm has happened, like that's the job. And so, but what what if we thought about how to not make that harm happen, right? Like a lot of people, sometimes you get involved in, in selling drugs because your family needs money. Well, what are we doing to make sure people have adequate housing, adequate jobs, kids have great education that will lead to adequate employment? Those are forms of community safety that we don't often talk about in this conversation. And I think that that's what I hope we're thinking about in the next 10, 15 years of New Haven. Any final thoughts, CJ? I'll say the same thing I say every time. We need to to change the culture of policing as it's been for decades. And I think the best way to do that is to educate our officers on what their actions actually do and the impact they have on the people. All right. Well, listen, Kayla Vincent, John Valeca, thank you so much for joining us at Dateline New Haven. I learned a lot listening to you. Kay, hope you come back. Thanks for having me. And John, you will come back. Of course. Since you're <laughs> of course. our resident criminal justice expert. We're going to take it out. And thanks to Harry Dross for working the control. And uh, we're going to take it out with the afro semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free from Group CD of Peace for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day, all night long at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio.